Today on the Everything 80s podcast, did Sesame Street go too far with Follow That Bird? Hey there, what's happening? Welcome back to the Everything 80s podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out today. Sesame Street is obviously a beloved show and cultural institution. The Muppets have made a great transition to the big screen, but could the same work for the characters of Sesame Street? Fall That Bird was a live-action movie released in 1985. It was a musical road comedy film produced by Warner Brothers and the Jim Henson Company. It tells the story of Big Bird having to leave Sesame Street and eventually making his way home. It was a box office failure, but still managed to find an audience on home video. So we're going to look at this whole movie. You might remember this. You might not even know it. But this was maybe Sesame Street pushing it a little too far. And maybe kids not responding as well as possible with the themes being a little too... Um, overwrought, you know, maybe for a younger audience. But we'll look into that whole thing. Before we start, though, if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you find your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you find it, I should be there. Okay, let's do this. So the year is 1985. And if you're a fan of movies, this is a real pinnacle part of the decade. A lot of incredible films came out that year, including Back to the Future, The Goonies, The Breakfast Club, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Gremlins, Ghostbusters, Mad Max. This is just scratching the surface. But the point is, it took a lot to stand out amongst the year's competition. This had a major impact on the movie Fall That Bird. Because this this film with these you know iconic, well-known and beloved characters just wasn't able to make a dent in the box office. And again, it might have been that the tone of the movie was a little too intense for kids or that the whole Sesame Street world just doesn't translate over to the big screen the same way the Muppets do. In either case, Fall That Bird is an interesting story of a kid's movie that probably should have been more successful than it was. So if you haven't seen this movie or it's been a while and you need a refresher, it's the plot of it is the standard Jim Henson go-to you know road trip movie, just like the original Muppet movie. It really it worked really well in that uh, original Muppet movie, but just didn't have the same success with the Sesame Street characters. The movie obviously based around a six foot canary named Big Bird, and here a few Big Bird fun facts. Big Bird was the very first puppet to appear on Sesame Street when it first started. Also, this is the cra- this is the craziest fact of the podcast. If you've seen that uh, I Am Big Bird documentary about Carol Spinney, who actually plays Big Bird, he was going to, as Big Bird, the character, be on the Challenger space shuttle originally. They were trying to create more interest in the space program. They thought that Big Bird would be a way to do that with NASA and they could they could have more tie-ins with, you know, kids-related stuff and introducing them more into space. When they were starting to train for it, they realized they couldn't fit the eight-foot costume on board, and that's when they went the civilian school teacher route with Krista McCullough, who was chosen to go in his place. So just crazy. That documentary is amazing if you can track it down. I'm not even sure where it airs these days. Okay, so the back to the plot of the movie. The, fe- the Feathered Friends Board of Birds, which is an organization within the, the movie, has tracked down Big Bird and wants to place him with his own kind. 
this will get into some of the themes in a bit. You can see where it's going. Miss Finch from the board travels to New York City to visit Sesame Street and bring him to the Dodo family that lives in Illinois. The Dodos and their kids, who seem based on Donnie and Marie Osmond, don't see eye to eye with Big Bird. He eventually has enough of their crap and gets out of there. Big Bird is now on the lam, and the story hits national news. Everyone on Sesame Street sees a story and springs into action to help their giant friend. On the journey, Big Bird ends up meeting classic celebrity cameos that are famous in Muppet movies. This time we have John Candy, some other SCTV alumni. He hitches a ride with Waylon Jennings. He stays with two kids on their farm. While Big Bird's on the run, he's not only being tracked by Miss Finch, but by the Sleaze Brothers. Obviously, with names like that, you know they're not up to any good. The Sleaze Brothers have plans to kidnap Big Bird. They're able to do so and force him into dressing in blue face and perform in a carnival. That That's all based around him singing this song about him being blue and sad and that sort of their draw to get the audiences in to see him. The Sesame Street gang has found Big Bird at the carnival, but the Sleaze Brothers make a break for it. Big Bird is eventually rescued, brought back to Sesame Street, and realized this is his one true home. So a good theme there. But let's look at some of the cast and the main people involved with the movie. Some of these are very obvious, but I think it's just worth looking at these amazing performers during really the prime of the Jim Henson Company. This movie is also considered the last time that Jim Henson would perform Kermit in a movie. So uh, the voice actors and performers, obviously Jim Henson performs Kermit and Ernie. Carol Spinney does Big Bird, Oscar the Grouch, Bruno the Trash Man. Frank Oz does Bert, Grover. I'd never known this till now, Cookie Monster. Jerry Nelson is voice of the Count and Harry Monster. Martin P. Robinson is Snuffleupagus. Uh, he does Telly Monster, Poco Loco. Bryant Young played the back of Snuffleupagus. Uh, Cheryl Wagner was Miss Finch, and then other performers like Trish Leeper and Gord Robinson play the Dodos. Those are the physical performers, but additional voices that include people like Brian Hofield as Daddy Dodo, Lorraine Newman as the mother, Kathy Silvers as Marie, and Eddie Deason as Donnie. For the human performances, you had the regular cast of Sesame Street with a few others added in, including Bob McGrath, Roscoe Orman, Emilio Delgado, Sonia Manzano, a lot, you know, a lot of the classics that you would see. Also, interestingly in this is Kermit Love, who appears as Willie. And he was one of the puppet designers for Jim Henson. Apparently, no connection between the naming of Kermit and this guy Kermit Love, who's one of the original Muppeteers, which seems bizarre. Have you ever met anyone named Kermit? So I don't know. That must be some odd coincidence. So here's the production on putting this movie together. And again, like researching this whole thing, I had no idea this movie was basically filmed an hour away from where I live. I live in southwestern Ontario. And this is a time where a lot of productions would come up to Canada because it was a lot cheaper to film. There were different tax breaks, all that sort of stuff. And uh, they would use the Toronto International Film Studios and started filming in 1984, and they completely recreated the Sesame Street set. Again, if you've seen this movie, you, you think it, it does look a lot different because it's more of an actual workable set as opposed to like the TV version, which is more like a backdrop. So they were able to create this bigger and rumor, bigger and roomier set. This would not only allow for more Muppets and actors, but it gave a larger scope 
that would hopefully translate well onto the big screen, especially when you're using film. You want more of that depth within the image where TV is, you know, a little flatter and that's, you know, due to resolutions and things like that. The new street now also included a fire station, a music store, an auto body shop, um, grocery store, bookstore, and some, you know, more things they could use to sort of interact with the characters. Again, coming back to that whole thing, if you thought this movie had a different look than what you were used to seeing on TV, you're right. And I remember that's one thing I immediately noticed when watching it. it like the tone seems completely different, but again, that's because of film and you want to give it that richer, more film-like quality to separate it from TV, which is low quality generally, especially back in the 80s. So that was due to cinematographer Curtis Clark and he was brought in to help achieve this different look. And then it's almost like immediately from the start, that different look just sets the tone and, and making it different from what you knew and grew up with. And that might have been part of the problem right off the bat. This guy, Clark, the cinematographer, he previously worked on a very arty film called The Draftsman's Contract. And they really wanted him to bring some of this style, um, almost this, not it's not disturbing style, but it's a little more jarring style to follow that bird. Again, I think just to, they wanted to differentiate between the childlike TV show and this film, which was a little more layered and um, had more subtext to it and all that sort of stuff. Jim Henson is pretty notorious for this. The, the, you know, the TV versions of stuff he does is very like lighthearted and childlike, but with his films, he just kind of like goes off the deep end. And he's like, if you think of things like um, the dark crystal or labyrinth, and he always had this uh, sort of idea that, it was okay for kids to be scared and that was important and for them to realize, you know, there is good and bad and the world is filled with those sort of things. It's really that Disney approach. You know, if you think back on those classic Disney movies like <clears throat> Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, a lot of these, they're actually like terrifying when you look back on them for kids, but they just, ha- they have these roots and traditional fairy tales. And part of that was the, the fear factor and to, um, I don't know. They're not trying to like disturb kids, but I think they're trying to show the alternative side that everything isn't just always like happy go lucky. But when those, you know, the bad times and the scary things happen, it does eventually lead to the light and there is more happiness. And that maybe that is the ultimate point is that good always wins, you know, and evil is pushed away. But, you know, it's that's just the approach they'd always taken Disney and Jim Henson. So producing this film was a relative newcomer named Ken Quapis, who you've probably not heard of, but you definitely know his work. So movie-wise, he's done things like uh, a kind of weird range between movies like Follow That Bird. He did The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Also, he's not that into you. But his big sort of foray into entertainment that you know is he was one of the main producers on The Office. And really was like one of the backbones in creating the show into what you know and love now. He also did Malcolm in the Middle, the Bernie Mac show, Freaks and Geeks, a lot of amazing stuff. So it's kind of, it's weird that he basically started with this Sesame Street movie. Okay, before we move on, let's take a little break here. Part of this big, complete 
And we're back. So I mentioned Ken Quampus is going to produce the film. He had just gotten out of film school in 1983, but after meeting with Jim Henson was offered the job on the spot. And that was a big thing with Jim Henson is he immediately got a feeling about a person and would decide instantly. He wouldn't mulled over. He would just go with his intuitions. So let's look at the actual issues with this movie being a little too intense. And this is the tough thing faced when filming the movie. Most of these characters have not been fully developed on Sesame Street. They appear on screen for usually a few minutes at a time and they're there to serve a larger purpose, like teaching lessons like math and spelling and colors and that sort of thing. They're very one-dimensional. They have never been fully fleshed out and the movie would not only do that, but go pretty deep while doing so. Just the concept of ripping Big Bird away from Sesame Street was potentially jarring from younger or for younger viewers. From there... Big Bird takes on this sort of classic Joseph Campbell hero's journey quest that has been used in countless movies. I mean, the most notable example with this is Luke Skywalker in Star Wars. And it's just that classic storytelling narrative of the kid leaving, um, finding himself growing, coming back a hero. You've seen it a million times. Luke Skywalker is the perfect example of the hero's journey. And they're doing that with Big Bird. They had the difficult task of exploring these emotional plot points while still trying to keep things fun and whimsical. Like, it still is a Sesame Street movie. But like I said, Jim Henson likes to explore these deeper and darker themes. The movie is still a musical as well. But with this, there aren't any notable standout songs like there has been with all the great Muppet movies. Whereas the Muppet movies had been about wacky adventures and trying to make it in show business. Big Bird is forced to face emotional decisions and come to grips with themselves. Again, that's part of the hero's journey. Um, And just, you know, think of back to uh, The Empire Strikes Back and Luke having to find and go deep into his soul to find who he really is. And they have to hit rock bottom before coming back up. Again, you know, traditional standard storytelling um, tropes. But to me, they went a bit too far. Well, and to a lot of people, they went too far with the emotional aspect of the film. And personally, that's what I remember taking away from it as a kid. I remember being so excited to see this movie and it's this fun, it's Sesame Street on the big screen and whatever. And you're kind of, and I remember being left kind of jarred and shaken up. The most notable part of the movie for many kids is when Big Bird is captured, turned blue and forced to sing at the carnival. Again, Big Bird is essentially a six-year-old kid, and his reactions and viewpoint are easily corrupted. And I think the kids watching were able to empathize with this, and they're seeing themselves through Big Bird. That was the whole point of the character. And the whole point of Sesame Street with all the various characters is to represent kids at whatever stages they're at and whatever viewpoints they're seeing. And over the years, they've incorporated more things with you know puppets coming Um, from families with divorce or going through illnesses and they're trying to represent the whole spectrum of what kids going through are going through and you know with Sesame Street at the time it was it was taking very basic uh, approaches and but again trying to do it from the viewpoint of a kid fall that bird of course has a happy ending but it goes through some pretty deep stuff to get there okay so this is a weird thing and that's come up quite a bit if you've looked in the movie is the idea of race themes in it, which you wouldn't think in a Sesame Street movie, but it's one that appears pretty glaring when we're talking about deeper themes. It's kind of hard to ignore it, but 
that race issue is one of the underlying messages in follow that bird. To start, there's the issue that birds are thought to only be with other birds. To most birds, this seems to be such an issue that they ended up forming that board, you know, with the, that ladybird coming to pull um, Big Bird away from Sesame Street. That whole board is uh, put together to focus on the best interest of keeping birds together. That Miss Finch, that's who I was meaning, she plays the role of this evil manifestation of bird relations. She is also completely delusional and seems to think she's doing the right thing. She represents to me, you know, the small minded and ignorant people that have trouble looking beyond their own, you know, misguided ideals. Ultimately, the movie focuses on themes of unity and the inclusion of all people, and that's something Sesame Street has been doing since day one. Both the show and the movie celebrates the differences between people. That is the take-home message in Follow That Bird, and again, a little more underlying in Sesame Street. They're not as upfront about it. I mean, that has changed over the decades. I haven't watched it in a while. Um, but that was what they want to explore with the movie. So, you know, that that's good and to teach the kids those lessons. But again, some parents groups saw that as a little too advanced for a six-year-old. But I guess, you know, ultimately teaching them those right lessons. But I guess I don't think parents were expecting that going into the movie, that they're going to have to come out and maybe go over some of these deeper issues. So speaking of that, Here's the response to Follow That Bird. Critically, the movie was received pretty well. Today, it still is a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Um, it's hard to trust Rotten Tomatoes with anything ratings-wise. It's kind of a standard, but it's been kind of turned into a bit of a cesspool, not always that trustworthy in their ratings. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. Even with the positive response from critics and the fact it was a Sesame Street movie, it got crushed at the box office. I'm not sure what the specific problem was at the time, though. I honestly, I, I don't know. It must have to be because of the amount of the massive competition that was coming out in 1985. Again, it's probably the pinnacle year of the decade for movies and of all time with all these classic blockbusters. We've gotten into the era of the PG-13 movie and that is the most profitable profitable movie rating. And kids' movies are tougher because they only have limited showings, so it's hard to develop an audience. They're not going to run it all day because they want to put the bigger money-making movies in. And, you know, they start them all sort of equally back in the 80s, so if it had a huge response, they would keep it going. Like Home Alone being an example, that was something that was supposed to have more of a limited run because there's other movies to go, but the, the response was so big, they had to fill all the different like um, viewing times. And you didn't have these giant multiplexes that you do today that have 32 different theaters in one building. It would have like, think of your movie theater that you went to, it had one or two screens or something like that. So it, it, it only had a limited amount of showings. What appears to be the other big issue that just didn't draw people out uh, besides the massive competition, was the parents dreading having to take what would be younger kids and having to pack them all up and snacks and get them all the way to the movies and sit them down. You know, this wasn't a movie for 12, 13, 14-year-olds who, who could still enjoy it, but it was for little, little kids. So I think that seemed like a daunting approach for a lot of parents. And they're like, why would I go... And schlep all these kids and all this hassle to get to the movies for something they can just watch on TV. Because Sesame Street is on every single day. So Fall That Bird opened on August 2nd, 1985. It opened the same weekend 
as Weird Science, Fright Night, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure. At the same time, it's only been like a week or two since Back to the Future and The Black Cauldron had opened, which were still going strong and growing by the week. All of these are kind of family movies, so I'm not sure if they were taking business away from Fall That Bird, but they were, you know, attracting a bit of a younger audience. The main thing is this was, again, one of the biggest movie summers of the 80s, and it just wasn't able to play on that many screens. Here's another issue I didn't realize till looking back on this. They had also, at the same time, uh, this is when the blockbuster, the summer blockbuster is coming into its own. That wasn't always a thing. It sort of gradually happened over time. At this point, they had also reissued E.T., Gremlins, and Ghostbusters. So that probably didn't help things either. Either way, Fall That Bird made only $2.4 million in its opening weekend and just under $14 million for its entire run. It was seen as a huge disappointment and actually had a financial effect that impacted the children's television workshop. If this movie had come out in November or April, it would have been a totally different story and it could have had a, a bigger impact and um, had much more success but this is you know again the the movie industry is still sort of feeling things out and you know the blockbuster is growing and the summer movies are becoming more important than ever uh, and the big openings you know like the may long weekend and all that sort of thing so they just i don't think they anticipated it that that amount of competition would crush it but let's look at the legacy and finding a new audience similar to movies uh, like i've covered with flight of the navigator Another great movie that just didn't do well in the box office, Follow That Bird would find a bigger audience on home video. So home video is still relatively new at the time, and the concept of owning a movie that you could watch over and over was starting to become commonplace. They started out being extremely expensive to own a, a, a brand new release, but eventually it started coming down, and that's where more people would discover these movies. The movie was released on VHS and Laserdisc. If you want to learn all about... Um, the history of Laserdisc and the actually pretty amazing story of VHS versus Beta. Go back into the earlier episodes where I've covered those things. Okay, so it comes out in 1986, and every kid who missed it in the theater finally got to see it. I remember getting to watch this at my neighbor's house again and and seeing it uh, for the first time. And even again, like I said, it was slightly overwhelming but still compelling. Kids, though, now would embrace the movie even more with many reportedly physically wearing out copies of the tape. I don't know if you're one of these kids. Again, you might not have ever heard of this thing or you might have loved it. That's why you like clicked on this episode. You might have been one of those kids who actually wore out copies of the tape. But as we wind down here, I think Follow That Bird is an interesting look at something that just didn't hit right. If it had come out a few years later or earlier, it might have had a different response. It might have been just a little too ahead of its time um and that's you know by no fault of its own it might have been served well for a couple more years of development um or or maybe maybe sort of promoting itself to a little bit older demographic instead of three-year-olds or four-year-olds who maybe find this a little too jarring it ultimately would get the right response but not until it was in the vcrs in the family living rooms so I'll finish it here. Here's the here's the one main fun fact I wanted to finish on. If you've seen this movie, if you haven't, you can probably look at this clip on YouTube. There's a scene where Bert and Ernie are flying in a plane, 
Jim Henson and Frank Oz were actually in a biplane that was upside down when they filmed this. So that whole thing you're seeing is these actual two performers working these puppets while flying in a plane. I think that was pretty amazing. Okay, so let's call it a day there. Hopefully you like this episode. Remember this movie, or maybe you're intrigued to track it down and look for it. I think there's always the odd copy floating around on YouTube. They get taken down really quick and stuff like that, but I think I saw it on there. But have a look. Either way, thanks for listening. Hope you like this show. Again, if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. I will be back soon with a brand new episode, so don't you dare miss it.